0: Well, please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. Say that for the final time in a while at least. Genesis chapter 50, it's on page 44 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, this morning we arrive at our final destination. It's the end of a 27-part series on the book of Genesis. And perhaps you were like me back in January as we began and it felt like you were, you know, looking up the side of Camelback. If you've ever hiked that mountain like thinking, "Oh man, are we going to be able to do this? And how long is this going to take us?" Well, it took us the better part of 8 months, but we are here. And friends, Here at the top of the mountain, what an incredible panorama we have, don't we, of God's dealings with his world. In fact, Genesis has answered for us many of life's most important questions. Where did we come from? Well, God created us. Why are we here? He created us to worship and enjoy him forever. Who are we? We're image bearers of the almighty, yet rebellious sinners whose only hope is redemption by God and reconciliation to God. Where are we going? God has promised to defeat death and break the curse and rescue sinners and prepare for us a place that will be better than Eden. That's what we've learned in the book of Genesis. Remarkably, while Genesis 1 begins with God speaking the world into existence and creating life, we'll see this morning that it ends with Joseph being mummified and placed in an Egyptian coffin. It starts with life. It ends with death. Yet although death is the last word for the book, it is not the last word for God's people our passage this morning is actually a word of hope in the redemptive purposes of our God. So let's turn our attention now to the word. Our sermon text this, this morning begins in verse 15, but because two weeks ago we didn't read through the first 14 verses of chapter 50, I would like to do that this morning. So we're going to start in Genesis 50 in verse 1. This is immediately following the death of the patriarch Jacob. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, My father made me swear saying I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds, were left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with them uh, and there went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. Now, friend, does this ring a bell for another event later in biblical history where an Israelite would ask permission from a pharaoh to journey out of the land of Egypt back to the land of Canaan? I hope so, because we read about it this morning. This is a sneak preview in God's providence of the great exodus. Let's keep going. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan." Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with, uh, for, uh, with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And now our text for this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be, that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the, of the servants of the, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We'll stop there for now. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to give you the main idea right up front. I think the main idea of Genesis 50, at least at the end of the chapter, is this. God's providence guarantees the success of his promises. God's governance of all things and all events and all human decisions, his providence guarantees the success of his providence, uh, promises. Now remember, God's providence is the central theme of the Joseph story in Genesis 37 to 50. Despite what was just horrific on a human level, the hidden hand of God was at work all along the way, working out his good purposes to exalt Joseph from the pit to the palace. Now I know we've encountered this this theme of providence multiple times now in Genesis. So it should smell familiar to us. You know, each time that um, Canaan, my youngest son, goes to bed, uh, we hand him his lovey, which is this small, raggedy, nasty white blanket with the head of a bunny on the end of it. And ever since uh, it was safe for Canaan to sleep with a blanket, he has slept with his lovey. And so now when you hand it to him, he just instinctively presses it close to his face and he smells it and he feels it It's it's because its familiarity brings him security and brings him comfort. And friends, I think this is precisely what the doctrine of God's providence is meant to do in our lives Because God governs all creatures and all events for his good purposes, we should relax in the comfort and security that all things, as we read this morning, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And yet what I hope you'll see this morning is not just the mere existence of God's providence in human history, but rather that it's God's providence that guarantees the success of all that he has promised to us. The promises of God cannot fail because the sovereign God of creation works all things together for good to fulfill his covenant to his people. I think we'll see two points this morning in the text. The first is from that part we just read. And the second point is from the end of the the book and the end of the chapter that we'll read later. Number one, trust the one who reigns over human evil for your good. Trust the one who reigns over human evil for your good. Number two, trust the one who will surely bring you home. Let's look at that first point. Friends, we must trust the one who reigns over evil for for our good. Verse 20 is one of the high watermarks of the entire Bible. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This verse has comforted Christians down through the millennia. It pictures God as having unlimited sovereignty, unlimited uh, latitude to do what he wants to do and that those purposes are good. So much that he even directs the intentions and actions of sinful men for his gracious ends. But what's the context of this hallmark verse in the Bible? Well, after Jacob's death, Joseph's brothers were gripped by the fear that Joseph's treatment of them was nothing more than a pretense, right? For the revenge that he would enact after their father died, right? He had just acted like he was treating them with kindness, but really he wanted revenge. Now, friends, did they have any reason to believe this based on the biblical record? None, right? Joseph had treated them with nothing but kindness. He had reconciled with them after all that they had done to him. He had provided for their families and for their flocks. And yet they thought he was out. For revenge, And so the brothers sent a message from the grave, as it were, citing Jacob's pre-death instruction that Joseph was to forgive the brother's sins against him all those years before. And there's also no record that Jacob had ever instructed them to do that. Right. In fact, in my mind, if Jacob wanted to communicate that message to Joseph, he would have done it himself. So I think their story is dubious were shown nothing in the Bible that Joseph's character would point in the direction of a man plotting vengeance. Remember what he had told them when they reconciled. You sold me, God sent me. That had been Joseph's attitude all along. Joseph had learned through the school of suffering and the tutor of exaltation to trust in the God who was faithful and sovereign and wise and good. Look at verse 17, the brothers they they sent this message, and they pleaded with Joseph, and now please forgive the transgressions of the God of your father, against the God of your father. I don't think I wrote that correctly. I'm reading from my notes. Forgive me. Let's see, what does it say? Now please for tr- forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Man, three words make a big difference in heresy or accuracy, doesn't it? Whew. This is the first time in the story that we see the brothers explicitly asking for forgiveness. Even all these years after their reconciliation, still their conscience and their fears haunt them. Notice what they do in verse 18. They came and they fell before him and said, behold, we're your servants. Friends, for the fourth time. They fulfilled God's word through Joseph's dreams. Remember, these dreams had inflamed their, their hatred and jealousy against Joseph because those dreams forecasted a day when the family, when the brothers would bow before him. And now you're nearly 40 years later, they bowed again, even as they sought his forgiveness. You know, the entire scene is just heartbreaking. You can understand why Joseph wept when he spoke with them. After all that he had done to protect and provide for them and to be generous to them, still they doubted his love for them. Friends, the brothers had an impoverished understanding of what forgiveness is, what reconciliation is. Forgiveness is not acting as if the wrong never happened. It doesn't even necessarily imply the the absence of consequences for the wrong. Rather, forgiveness is choosing not to remember someone's sin against them. It's dealing with someone, not through the lens of judgment, but through the lens of mercy. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're skeptical about the possibility of this type of forgiveness. Maybe the wrong that others have done to you just seems too great to forgive. Maybe your sin against another person seems like a wall too high to scale to ever have a relationship with that person again. Maybe you've been coming to church week in and week out over the last few weeks, and you've heard me proclaim the good news of a God that has made a way for rebellious sinners like us to be forgiven entirely through the death of his son in our place. And you just think, well, that sounds more like a fairy tale than reality. I get it from a human standpoint. Full and free forgiveness is like a unicorn. right? It's It's like a pipe dream. But true forgiveness from a biblical perspective isn't natural. It isn't human. It's supernatural. It flows from the heart of God himself, who instead of justly consigning every human who has ever lived to eternal hell for our rebellion against him, he's determined to redeem and to rescue and forgive those who would come to him through the atoning death of his son in their place. So that now all of us who are united to Christ by faith aren't just saved from his wrath, We're fully reconciled to God in a relationship with him. And then he empowers us to forgive others for their wrongs against us and gives us the strength to seek forgiveness for those whom we have wronged. Now, Joseph only knew that gospel in seed form. He clung to promises yet to be fulfilled, but it's abundantly clear that he understood, friends, the mechanics of forgiveness. Twice in this interaction, in verse 19 and verse 21, he told the brothers, Do not fear. He sought to alleviate their trembling hearts with his heart of love for them. And friends, what did he ground his forgiveness in? Well, Joseph understood number one, that it's God's prerogative to judge. Number two, he understood the providence of God. It's God's prerogative to judge and he understood the providence of God. You see that? Verse 19, Joseph said to him, do not fear for am I in the place of God. Joseph understood that although he had almost unlimited authority as the vizier of Egypt, there was an authority that he did not have. That was the authority to carry out retribution against his brothers. The gavel of justice did not rest in his hands, but in God's. God is the one whose right it is to judge since he is the creator and king of the universe. Friends, we're not going to linger on this point long this morning, but I do wonder how often we try to snatch the gavel of justice out of the Lord's hands. Someone does us dirty. Well, we'll give them what's coming to them. Our spouse ticks us off. We'll show them. We'll either unleash a volcanic eruption of anger, or we'll just not talk to them for hours until we show them the precise amount of justice that's necessary to meet their crime against us. And enemies of the gospel belittle us. Uh, we'll we'll show them. We'll try to humiliate them. Oh, friends, remember these words of Joseph. Rub them deep into your heart so that they come out in your instincts the next time you're wronged. Am I in the place of God? The answer is the same every time. Notice the second reason that Joseph assures them of his forgiveness. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about Bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, Joseph could not fathom not forgiving his brothers for all that they had done against them because at this point he had traced the clear hand of God in his life. In his suffering for all those years and his exaltation, God's sovereignty taught him the way of forgiveness. I don't know about if this is a true statement or not, but it just seems true to me. Other than Romans eight twenty eight that opened our service this morning, I don't know if you'll find a clearer or more strong statement in the Bible about the limitless boundaries of God's sovereignty. Notice what Joseph didn't do. He didn't gloss over what his brothers had done to them. He didn't act like it never had happened. Instead, he acknowledged it. He said, you indeed meant or intended evil, harm against me. Joseph acknowledged that his brother's aim was his demise. However, and it's a big however, alongside this track of the brother's evil intentions against Joseph was a parallel track. Do you see it? It's the parallel track of God's purposes, God's intentions, Friends, this is the great news about our God that we learn in Genesis 5.20, that God's sovereignty does not stop where evil begins. Praise the Lord. Rather, God's reign as our good and wise king is so thorough, so complete, that he, he even ordains that, that physical evil like natural disasters and pandemics and death and moral evil and the, and the sinful choices of humanity, all of those things, All of those evils bring about his purposes for his people. That's how sovereign he is. And those purposes, although they seem harmful, are always and forever good and right. The brothers intended evil against Joseph when they threw him into the pit, when they sold him into slavery. They were responsible for their sin, and yet God turned the intentions of their heart for his intentions for good friends. I want to just double click on this theme and explain it a little bit more theologically. Uh, Theologians call this, this understanding of human responsibility and divine sovereignty as compatibilism in the scripture. God's sovereignty is, is never presented in a way that curtails human responsibility, the choices that we make and our human freedom to make those choices And the responsibility that we have is never presented in such a way to make God contingent upon us. Our free actions and responsibility, God's free and unlimited sovereignty. And they're compatible biblically. Friends, if you're struggling with this doctrine, I suggest spending time meditating on both Acts 2. And Acts 4, where Peter and the apostles are clear, even though lawless men crucified the Lord of glory, they killed the Messiah, it all took place according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is not the author or the approver of sin, but he is sovereign over it. Now friends, I understand this is a hard thing for us to grasp. And you will wear yourself out if you try to get your logic around it. But we believe that these truths are compatible with each other because God said it, and we embrace it because we trust our God. When it comes to the the understanding of the relationship between human responsibility and divine sovereignty, it's far better to have the perspective of the, of the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom! And knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how how unscrutable his ways. It's fascinating to me that without a word of scripture to help him understand who God is, there's no written scripture at this time. Joseph could confidently say, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Your intentions were overruled by a sovereign and good God. For now wonder is Joseph's theology of suffering your theology? It's easy to worship the sovereignty and providence of God generally. We praise him as the creator and sustainer of all things. We're not deists, right? We don't believe that God is like the divine watchmaker who just wounds the world up, right? Or wound the world up at the beginning and then just let it run. No, we wholeheartedly would say and we confess eagerly that he not only created all things, but he actively sustains every molecule and galaxy by the word of his power. As the Heidelberg said, as we read this morning, leaf and blade are in his hand. We ascribe to him sovereign control over the weather, over seasons, over nature. We thank him when things go well. We rejoice when he is our good and and, 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 and kind father, our benevolent God gives us good gifts to enjoy. But what about when things turn against you? What about not just when God gives, but when he takes away? Do you still bow before your king and father and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Puritan theologian Thomas Watson illustrated it like this. He said, suppose you were to walk into a, a smith's shop, like a blacksmith, and there you would see several types of tools, some crooked, some bowed, others hooked. Watson said, would you, would you condemn all of those tools for naught because they don't look handsome? He's a Puritan. He's writing, you know, hundreds of years ago. The smith makes use of them all for the doing of his work. He says, thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to to us to be very crooked and strange, but they all carry on God's work. In other words, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. What about when your career gets derailed by poor business decisions or by an unfair boss? Did God lose his grip on you? What about when conflict just seems to be the currency of your marriage? Is that proof that that God's sovereignty only extends so far as, as a good marriage? If it goes badly, well, then God probably didn't intend for you to be married at all to that person. We know that's not true, but we think those thoughts sometimes, don't we? Maybe God ordained for you to have a difficult marriage in order to chip away at your sin and your selfishness and conform both you and your spouse more fully to the image of Christ than he could have ever done with you separate separately. Maybe that. Over the last year, we've gone through this natural physical evil of COVID-19 and now it seems like this variant is making its way again. Friend, was God napping when that virus leaked out of the Wuhan lab, which it seems now all signs point to it. That's the way it started. Was he napping? No, we have to say theologically, not only did did God know it happened, but in his wise and mysterious and good purpose, he ordained it to happen for both ends of judgment and mercy. We can't plumb the depths of his designs, but we do hold on to the promise that he works all things, even COVID-19 together for good for those who love him. Many of you have experienced tremendous loss because of this. I can't tell you exactly why God ordained and allowed for this to happen, but I can assure you that in your grief and loss, God will glorify himself by using all your suffering for your good, both now and eternally. None of it's wasted. None of it's meaningless. None of it evaded God's tender and sovereign care for you. Friends, I know this doctrine of God's sovereignty over evil is a difficult and hard truth to get your mind and heart around. But would you really want it any other way? Seriously. Would you want to pray to a God who's loving, but who doesn't know what the future is until it happens? Would you want to give your life to a king whose reign stops where evil begins? Would you want to entrust your eternal future to a God whose sovereignty has a few cracks in it? For me, the answer is unequivocally, no way. Give me the God who knows the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Give me the God whose reign is not threatened by evil, but reigns over it. Give me that God. That's the God I can cast my life upon and pray with confidence to during both the good times and the bad times. That he not only hears me, but has limitless power to answer my prayers according to his will and to use all my suffering for my eternal good. What practically does this mean for your life today? What does it mean as we go out to our nine to five? It means that we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. He said, that sounds really eloquent. Well, we read it earlier. It's, It's in the Heidelberg catechism. It is eloquent. All creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they neither move nor be moved. Friends, I think it's a very healthy thing for us to actively trace out God's gracious providence in our lives. Like actively taking time to think about it and write it down. That's what we're trying to do in the stories of grace. I mean, if you didn't see God's providence in Nate's story today, you were sleeping during Sunday school, okay? We look back in our lives and we see God's hand and how he's faithful to his promises To It's like rocket fuel for our trust in him. But I want to encourage you, guard yourself when tracing out God's providence. Guard yourself from demanding immediate answers. It took years for Joseph to fully understand what God was doing through the slavery, through the false accusations and imprisonment. Even in his life, he said at the end of this story, okay, God meant it for good, but... You're going to remain here in Egypt for hundreds of years and then God will bring you out. In other words, God's playing the long game. You're not, if you're not able to trace the providential dots easily, friend, right away, don't freak out. Don't grow bitter. Rather, rest assured that even your greatest suffering now is a, preparing for you an eternal weight of glory then. You may never have all the answers, but one day it's going to be worth it all. I, you know, I don't think the point of Genesis 50 verse 20 is merely that we understand that God is sovereign in the abstract. The point isn't that he rules over human evil generically, but he does so for the success of his promises to his covenant people. Look at what the good is. Look at the good purpose that Joseph highlights for his brothers in verse 20, 21. God has brought it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, yeah, it's true, his rise to power in Egypt blessed the Egyptians, it it blessed other nations that suffered from the famine, praise the Lord. But more importantly, his exaltation ensured the preservation of the covenant line, right? The family of Israel through whom God would bring the Messiah and his salvation. God kept his promises, friends, to Abraham, that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He made those over centuries, He kept his promises by overriding the hostility of Jacob's brothers and turning it for good. You see that? The point that Moses seems to be making to us is that God's providential government of all things guarantees not just generic good, but the specific good of his promises coming to fruition. The greatest evil in the world can't stop God from from fulfilling his word and from bringing his salvation. God's providence serves his promises. If you forget everything in this message, take that. God's providence serves his promises. Praise the Lord. Friends, think about the implications of this. This means that God rules the universe for the sake of his people, he reigns over the galaxies for the ultimate good of his church. This means that history is truly his story. I know that's trite, but it's true. He rules and guides history to its intended conclusion and goal that he planned before the world was created, that his glory might be made known and his covenant people might be brought safely home. He rules over everything so that he might do us good. Friends, that was the reality then and it's the reality now. Think about the words of the Lord Jesus as I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Beloved, take heart. It may seem like the forces of darkness are just encroaching around us, that that these political and social agendas, they're, they're just escalating around us. But listen, no evil agenda flies outside the radar of God's sovereign control. Perhaps God is, is purifying his church through them and he, he's painting a dark canvas so that the light of Christ might penetrate it all the more brightly. One of the most devastating things that in the pandemic, and you've heard me pray about it, is just to see how, how, how that virus and the shutdown of the world has, has affected the lives and ministries of missionaries. You've heard me pray for brother pastors shut out of their churches, even last week, the ones in Shanghai, China, these brothers had fruitful, thriving ministries. It's heartbreaking. And on Monday, right after I prayed for this last week, I received a newsletter from one of these brothers saying that it appears that the door to China is shut. It's firmly shut. So in response, they formed a new missionary team to go to Bangkok, Thailand. Friends, wouldn't it be just like God to overrule the enemy's evil intentions for great gospel good in Bangkok and throughout Southeast Asia? It reminds me of of Paul and and Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18 when the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius, had kicked out all the Jews out of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they migrated to Corinth. And it was there that they met the Apostle Paul and they helped him plant the church at Corinth and then the church at Ephesus. You meant it for evil. Claudius meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's how he works. 20, 30 years from now, I can't wait to trace out the harvest of gospel fruit that God has given through the hardship of even COVID-19. We've seen this fruit already in our own church. People coming to faith, people coming back to church that haven't darkened the doors of a worship gathering for decades. God overrules evil for good. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you too can trace out the providence of God in your life. Times when you should have died but didn't. It wasn't luck? It was the providential hand of God keeping you alive. Times that you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Not just good karma, but the goodness of God to an undeserving sinner like you. I even believe God has you here today for a reason. Perhaps God ran you across an old friend or gave you the desire to seek him again or put you in a dating relationship so that you might hear the good news of the gospel here, that there is a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to take the wrath of God that you justly deserve and to rise triumphantly from the dead to conquer death for you, for all those who would trust in him. Perhaps God has you here this morning even so that you would turn from your rebellion against him and turn your life over to King Jesus. Maybe that's why you're here. Trust the one who rules evil for good. Number two, trust the one who will certainly bring you home. Let's read the rest of the book. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up the bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's the end. At first glance, this is an extremely unsatisfying end to such an epic book. It's like the movie that Lindsay and I were at a few weeks ago. Uh, the ending was so abrupt, it just left us frustrated as we filed out of the movie theater. Well, friends, here Genesis ends with Joseph's death and his mummification. Great ending, Right? Okay, well, yeah, we're thankful to learn of his full life. They got to see his great-grandchildren, include them in his inheritance. That's great. But but the end of Genesis is clear, isn't it? This is a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world under the curse of sin where death is both expected and inevitable. Yesterday, I listened to a sermon on this text by my friend Matt, who's a pastor in Utah. And Matt helpfully noted how much weeping fills Genesis fifty. Joseph weeping over his dead father. The Egyptians weeping over Jacob too. The Egyptians and Jacob's family lamenting and mourning at his memorial ceremony in Canaan. Joseph weeping at the words of his brothers. Friends, this is a, a Genesis 3 world with the presence of suffering and death. It's a world where we're all exiled out of Eden. Where death and sorrow hold sway. We heard about it last week. Blessed are those who mourn all the more heartbreaking when we remember that Genesis started in paradise and now it ends in a coffin. It just seems depressing. Or is it? Notice that Joseph, like his father Jacob, instructed his family to swear that they would carry his bones up from Egypt when they exited the land. Okay, so like Abraham, like Isaac and Jacob, Joseph wanted to be buried in Canaan, the land that God had promised his people. Like his fathers, Joseph trusted in God's promises that extended beyond the grave to a time of future fulfillment. But I think there's even a deeper meaning. Friends, the patriarchs understood, follow me here. The patriarchs understood that God's covenant promise of land represented something much greater, greater than a parcel of earth. In the, middle of, in the Middle East, they understood that the land signified that God had eternal purposes for his people, that they, that we can look forward in confident expectation to life beyond the grave. That's why the author of Hebrews wrote of the patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, not having seen, or, or, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that, from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In other words, they understood God's promise wasn't just about Canaan. Canaan was like the down payment of something far greater to come, which we now understand from the rest of the Bible. It's a new heavens. It's a new earth. It's literally a remade universe in which righteousness dwells because God dwells there with his people. So at the very least, Joseph is looking forward to this greater homeland, but there's more. Look at what he, what he, look at what he does. He connects explicitly the future of his bones in that coffin to the future of God's people. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Exodus, isn't he? Joseph is confident beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will keep his promise that he made to Abraham and then to Jacob that God's going to bring his people out of Egypt, out of exile, back to the land. And that's why, reading a lot of Hebrews this morning, that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 wrote about Joseph. We read it last week in the service or two weeks ago. Chapter 11, verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus Of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones by faith. By faith, Joseph took God at his word, and sure enough, God kept his word. Hundreds of years later, when when God through Moses delivered his people out of Egypt, guess whose bone filled coffin went up with the Israelites? Joseph's, we read about it this morning in Exodus 13, 19. And then at the end of the conquest, when God gave his people the land that he had promised them, guess whose bone-filled coffin was buried underneath Canaan? Joseph's. It's like bookending the Exodus, right? It's almost as if the Lord planted a seed that's going to bloom in an even greater promised land one day. It's not like he did that. That is what he did. And why is this significant? It's significant because although Genesis may appear to end on a downer, although death may seem to cover humanity like a shroud, although God's people are exiled outside the promised land, Joseph's words signal deliverance is on the way. Joseph said in verse 24, I'm about to die. And then follow two of the sweetest words that could ever be uttered. But God... God will visit you. The God who spoke the cosmos into existence through his powerful word, he will visit you. The God who made man in his very image, he will come. The God who promised even in judgment that the offspring of woman would crush the head of the serpent, he will set you free. The God of Abel and Seth and Enoch and righteous Noah, he will keep his covenant with his people. The God who called Abram and Sarah out of Ur as his special people and promised them offspring, land, and blessing, that faithful God will keep his word. The God who gave life to Sarah's dead womb in her old age, that God will keep his promise. The God who provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac on Mount Moriah, he will pass over his people once again. The God who providentially led Abraham's servant to Rebekah and Padan Aram, he will lead his people by cloud and fire to the promised land. The God who chose the younger over the older, he will not forget the children of Israel. The God of Bethel and Peniel will never leave or forsake his own. The God whose meticulous providence governed evil and the suffering and exaltation of Joseph in Egypt will one day lead them out. The God who promised the conquering king would come from Judah's line. He will visit his people. Joseph knew that deliverance from Egyptian exile was just the first installment, friends, of a much greater deliverance to come. Exile from Egypt would not be the last word. Exile from Eden would not be the last word. Death's iron grip is not the final reality. The Redeemer is coming praise God, he came. He came. God providentially directed world history so that when the fullness of time had come, that's how Galatians says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, like Genesis 3.15, born of woman, to be our redeemer, our savior, and our king. Like Joseph, like the people of Israel, Jesus the Messiah was exiled in death. Not because he deserved that curse, But because in love, he stooped to take the curse that we deserved. And yet, because he had never sinned, death had no hold on him, and he was raised to resurrection life to deliver his people in what the Bible calls a new exodus. He crushed the head of Satan and released all who would trust in him from slavery and death, as Steve prayed and thanked the Lord for this morning. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to pave the way to glory. And one day, friends, he's going to return. And he's going to bring to bear in a physical reality all the benefits of his victory. Death is going to die forever. And we will live forever in a world of eternal joy. And it's going to be better than Eden. We will not only know God's goodness like Adam and Eve in the beginning, but we will forever praise him for mercy that delivered sinners like us. Friends, this is the great Christian hope. It's here in seed form, pun intended. It's here in seed form in Genesis 50. Death does not have the last word. Our faithful God has promised to leave his people home. Yes, it's true. The weeping of Genesis 50 is still often our reality today. Sorrows fill this life, sorrow upon sorrow. But here at the end of Genesis, the end of the beginning. Seen in the light of the rest of history, it just beckons us. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes to the day when King Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Listen to the end of the story as we close this morning. Revelation 22, verse 1. They will see his face and their name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever. Let's pray. Oh father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, this opening book of your revelation to us, this book of origins, this amazing book of Genesis. Oh, Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us over the last few months through Genesis. Father, that you are a covenant-keeping God. That, Father, you have so governed our lives and governed our reality to work everything for good. For those of us who are your people so father remind us of these truths this week when things seem off kilter when things are hard when our relationships suffer remind us of your good providence over us and for us even father when we're once again encountering the realities of life in a fallen world and even grieving loss of friends and relatives In the suffering in this life, help us remember that death does not have the last word. Help us remember that our Lord Jesus, our King, has conquered it forever. And help us to cast our eyes and hope to the day that He's going to return and set everything right. To the day when the new Jerusalem will descend. When your creation, is going to be remade in glory, and beauty, and we will live forever with you. Cast our eyes to that day. Oh, Father, fuel us with that hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.